0: The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. There are entrepreneurs and business leaders that are making so much more than profit in their enterprises. They're also giving back to the community, and so can you. Welcome to Be More, Achieve More inspiration for the entrepreneurial mind with host Chris Cooper. If you are looking to make the most of yourself and your business then you will want to stay tuned for the next hour. Here's your host Chris Cooper.
1: Hi this is Chris Cooper and um, wonderful to be back with you again for uh, just another week. I'm back from a couple of weeks of holiday uh, so i um, It's just uh, really nice to be sitting here and uh, having the opportunity to talk with you uh, again. Just before I went away, I interviewed Chad Barr, who was the online expert behind many uh, thought leaders and experts, uh, particularly in the United States, but he does work very globally. People like Alan Weiss, uh, the Million Dollar Consulting Expert, And I, I really was quite blown away by the amount of content to help us improve our online presence. So I would strongly recommend if you've not listened to, do, to that, I shall be in, uh, transcribing it for my own benefit. It's well worth it. And then I played some replays while I was away with Neil Lawton, the adventurer on leadership and uh, Paul Don on the power of small. So thank you to them as well. Now, if you're joining the show today uh, live, um, you might notice some new branding uh, to reflect my um, business elevation brand, uh, which is about helping you to elevate business and personal performance by um, becoming more. Uh, This is still a work in progress this week, and there will be a new audio to reflect the brand change in the next few days. Um, So I'm just, as I say, back from holiday, and I've been so busy, and I don't really feel this week that I've got myself quite back into my flow. I don't know if you ever feel that when you've been away for a little period of time. And I found myself straight back into book edits book edits, and branding and speeches and coaching and meetings. So I don't think today I could be talking to anyone better than my guest uh, Michael Carroll uh, and about the subjects of mindfulness. Now there's a new generation of business leaders who seem to be turning to mindfulness as a cutting edge leadership tool. And I'm hearing this word so often and even my wife informed me the other day that she's going on a course on mindfulness. and. Scientific research suggests that the practice of mindfulness can really help individuals to gain clarity, reduce stress, optimize performance, develop a greater sense of well-being. And in this often complex and um, pressured 21st century workplace, this is important. So if, like me, you're interested in becoming a more mindful leader, then this is a show for you. I'm so delighted to welcome back my guest today, Michael Carroll, um, the author of Awake at Work, the Mindful Leader and Fearless at Work to the show. I so love the show that I did with him over three years ago, which is in the archive. So if you've not heard that, um, do go back and listen to it. And uh, I've been thinking about inv- inviting Michael back for quite some time. Uh, Michael, over his thirty-year business career, held executive positions with major companies like uh, Shearson Lehman, American Express, Simon and Schuster, and the Walt Disney Company. He's presently CEO of Global Coaching Alliance and worked with clients such as Procter and Gamble, Google, Starbucks, National Geographic, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And he's been studying Tibetan Buddhism since 1976, and he graduated from uh, a Buddhist seminary in the, um, 1980. He's an authorised teacher in Kagyu Nyingma, lineage of Tibetan Buddhism. He's got a bachelor's degree in theology, philosophy from the University of Dayton, a master's degree in ed- education from Hunter College. He's lectured and taught at many educational establishments like Wharton Business School, Yale, Columbia, Sydney and Toronto Universities. And many practice centers throughout uh, the world. So a huge welcome today to uh, my guest, Michael Carroll. Thanks Thank for having me. You're very welcome, Michael. I've got to ask you this really, because we've uh, not, um, uh, interviewed you now for, I think it's about well over three years. And uh, what have you been doing since our last interview?
2: Mm, I've been growing older. <laughs>
1: <laughs> me too. <laughs> yeah.
2: Um, you know, um, you know, I have, I'm very fortunate. I have a good life. And, um, you know, I run a, a business, and uh, but in terms of mindfulness, it's been a very interesting three years. It does, appear that the conversation about mindfulness and leadership and uh, how this could actually uh, contribute to you know global business has has grown outside of the U.S. Uh, I've been to San Paulo and Seoul and. Uh, France, uh, and other, you know, throughout the U.S. as well, really the conversation has grown quite significantly over the past few years, and uh, it's getting, it appears to be globalizing, and uh, so that's what I've been doing, and also in my business, we're we're working very much around, uh, we have coaches around the world, we deploy coaches around the world, and many of us are now really actively applying the mindfulness disciplines in our coaching
1: activities. So... It's kind of uh, what I've been doing over the past three years. It kind of feels like it to me that this, this whole area of mindfulness, that a few years ago, it was kind of one of those subjects when you talk to business people, that was a little bit, I don't know the word, woo-woo. <laughs> uh, but actually, you know, today, you know, people are taking it as a much more you know harder than softer thing, if that makes sense. Yeah, well, you know,
2: I, I'm, I'm a cynic about science, though I love it, and I work with scientists all the time, and they're good people, hardworking, disciplined, uh, a little cynical about the research. Uh, but the, the fact of the matter is, is there's a, a growing body of research that basically in, indicates that sitting still in this fashion for extended periods of time is an extremely healthy thing to do and uh everything from repairing the immune system to working with anxiety and depression to developing emotional intelligence uh, you know we could go on and on so i think that the fact that science has been doing research around this very simple discipline uh and and revealing um an enormous uh, body of benefit uh has uh, has really attracted a lot of attention
1: now you could you could say that sleeping is Partly sitting still. Um, I suppose you actually, if you film people, they're moving around quite a lot. Um, but it seems, it seems to be you know, that that sitting still is a you know, kind of another state between sleeping and being awake. Um, well, so th- are there kind of like you know, there's kind of three functions then that we should be practicing,
2: right? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting. A lot of what I'm talking about now is uh, from what I call from mindfulness to wakefulness. Because what mindfulness is about, you know, when you're sitting still like that, it, it looks, you know, we're just sitting still, but we're actually internally uh, training the attention to stabilize. You know, normally, if you just if the audience takes just a moment right now for a moment, just a little silence, you begin to notice that one's attention is is very. Um, uh, sort of speedy or wondering what's going on or there's questions and there's an internal dialogue that's very uh, very uh, energized well the practice of mindfulness is about working with that energy and making friends with it and also in working with it stabilizing our attention in the present moment in not inside our head not rehearsing our experience but actually having it so that, that takes, it's a subtle form of uh, discipline. So while it looks pretty simple just sitting there, and it is, there is a lot more going on in terms of training the mind uh, and working with uh, some very
1: fundamental elements of, of, of uh, being human. Mm. So if you if you're to really, really define mindful awareness, what, what is it? What do we gain from it?
2: Yeah, I'd say three things. First and foremost is the training of the attention to stabilize in the present moment for as long as you would like and choosing to do it whenever you want. Yeah. And uh, it's, it's a very simple uh, yet very demanding uh, challenge to be able to stay in the present moment. So that's the mindfulness element of it and the practice is very much designed about how do you escort your attention from the internal dialogue into the present moment now the second part of that is, is once that stabilizes some to some degree the uh, relationship with one's experience begins to unfold uh, according uh, along lines that one would may not have assumed uh, and it's a very somatic bodily sense of presence about how do you engage your world. If you're not thinking about your experience but actually having it, it, a whole set of qualities of the mind and the heart and the body begin to unfold very naturally. These are very healthy uh, in terms of social intelligence, emotional intelligence, the ability to listen, for example. Rather than listening to your version of somebody, you can actually listen to what's going on. Uh, so these things begin to unfold very naturally. You know, in the book *Mindful Leader*, I get into the talents that naturally unfold because of the practice. Mm-hmm. But then finally, there's a quality of uh, a very an unfolding quality of meaning begins to occur, where you know you begin to notice that what you're doing isn't sort of a, you know a job isn't just something you do to to you know, it's like a tax you pay so you can live your life, but you're actually living your life every moment, whether you're on the job or not. And there's a quality of intimacy and authenticity and, uh, dignity that begins to unfold, uh, uh very naturally from the practice because guess what? That's who we are as human beings. If we're not afraid of our experience. So, um, you know, I don't get into the benefits talk. I mean, you can get a scientist on here and he or she can speak about that it repairs your immune system, that it literally grows cells in the brain that that manage emotional intelligence. You can um, bring your blood pressure down rapidly. It uh, you, you can work with anxiety uh, by using the simple attention dis- discipline on your breath. These are all great benefits, but that's not where I go with this. This is about unfolding our natural qualities of being human, which are very inspiring, very dignified, and uh,
1: uh, very—I uh, would say—inspiring. Uh, you you articulate it very beautifully, and and very eloquently. Is one of the qualities that you gain from uh, this uh, this mindfulness the ability to to stop and be able to do that?
2: It, uh, well <laughs> yeah i there, there's no doubt in my mind whatsoever that the practice makes you a better communicator period but it isn't so much maybe a verbal uh ability uh could be but it it makes you it puts you in touch with your world so you're so just the ability to listen to someone else not your version of what you want to hear not your opinion uh but actually to listen to your world. Another thing that comes from the practice, it, it, for those who haven't done the practice, one of the things you do is you escort your attention from a thought to your breath. It's very simple, very boring. But in the process of doing that, you have to let go of your internal dialogue. Well, if you do that enough, what begins to occur in your everyday life is you don't buy your own story. You, don't, mm. you just don't buy your own... Storyline, your, your own version. Yeah, you, you see it, you work with it, but it isn't, it isn't solid. But that agility of, of emotional and mental uh, uh, poise is very skillful. You, know, you can actually read things better because you're not stuck in your own point of view, uh, your mindset is not fixed. You could take a perspective of a CFO, or you could take a perspective of a customer, or right. you could take the perspective of the uh, of the computer scientist that's trying to engineer it, or you can take the cus- the, the the view of a of your boss. You, you, there's a flexibility of mind that that begins to unfold uh, from the practice that makes you far more open, empathetic, and skillful in working with others. Uh, and
1: I that, I think that's the
2: essence of good communication.
1: Uh, and I can imagine from that, from that ability to, to really listen to the moment and not uh, your version of it, that you could make some very different decisions as a consequence.
2: Yes, absolutely. Uh, uh, you know, I would, I would say that part of, yeah, absolutely, without a doubt, part, part, of, part of what happens there is you become more anticipatory, not from the point of view of hesitant, But you see where things are going, right? You don't buy – you don't get into uh, a kind of a structured linear, this is my job, this is my goal, this is what needs to get done. But you you begin to see how the the kind of the coalescence of circumstances are moving things in a particular direction. And you can be more – it's almost like playing tennis. You can be more anticipatory about where – things are moving so that your decisions aren't sort of caught in, in time, but they're kind of agilely part of the, the atmosphere as as, as you uh, make decisions, as you communicate. Sounds kind of theoretical,
1: but uh, no doubt you can uh, make better decisions. One, one of the things I, I believe is that you know, we all have a, a purpose, and you know I know my kind of purpose in life, and I, I wonder through this process whether this can put you much more in touch with that. Is that? Well,
2: yeah, I think you're getting to, you know, a lot of, in the West, a lot of the reason why we engage this practice is for very practical reasons. You know, it can reduce stress. It can do all kinds of things. It's a very healthy thing to do. But what you're striking at is, is the, the origin of this practice goes back to, you know, 3,000 years, uh, it's a yogic tradition out of India. And what the men and women who were practicing this discipline uh, were seeking was a, a, a final insight into what it means to be human mm. and uh, resolving that. So, this practice is as much about waking up to who we are as it is about being mindful
1: of our experience. Mm. And what what problems do you notice in the workplace when leaders are not being mindful? <laughs> <laughs> I, I uh, I'm sorry, I didn't expect
2: that question. Well, I think it's, I think it's generally true. Not even at the workplace, but just dr- generally in life, we tend to speed past our experience rather than have it.
1: Mm.
2: You know, we we tend to. Want uh, to make our world behave itself so that we feel safe, so that we feel that everything is going to be okay. And w- particularly at work, we notice, as I say in a wake of work, work is a mess. It's always a mess. There's always something going wrong. Now, from the point of view uh, a, a, of a conventional approach to that, we often get angry with that. We get disturbed about that. We become afraid. We blame, blame one another. But from a mindful point of view, it's like supposed to be messy. It's okay. That's what we're supposed to be working with. So a, a lot of the toxicity in the workplace comes from an emotional reaction to the nature of work, which is that it's unruly. And we emotionally react uh, out of fear not out of bravery or confidence. And uh, a lot of the toxicity in the workplace really comes from the, that emotional reaction, a fear-based emotional reaction to the unruliness of work. The mindfulness practice, if, if done consistently over time, that fear-based approach loses its potency and
1: confidence begins to naturally arise. Wonderful. I think uh, that's a, a lovely way to end uh, this segment. And after the segment, we shall start to uh, understand really you know, how to, to utilize this work to kind of cultivate your leadership talents and uh, some you know, practical ways that you can you know, apply this to uh, the way that you operate and the way that you work and lead. So we will be back with you again in just a couple of minutes.
0: Tuned in to Be More Achieve More with host Chris Cooper. If you have a question or comment about our show, please direct your emails to info at bemoreachievemore.com. That's info at bemoreachievemore.com. Now back to Chris Cooper.
1: Hi, this is Chris Cooper. I'm with My- Michael uh, Carroll and we're talking about about uh, mindfulness and being a mindful leader. Uh, I wonder. If, Michael, um how you found that with in uh, you know, leaders who do kind of embody this how how it's really kind of cultivated their natural talents
2: mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean a couple of things. Um, you know i the one that I'm thinking about it just came into my mind is we typically go into uh, our uh, circumstances. Uh, as leaders, as professionals, as as trained business people or organizational people, we we bring a level of expertise to the job, as we should. But when when you practice this uh, mindfulness, uh, you don't let that expertise blind you. Mm. That often we try to uh, solve problems, we try to engage problems, we try to uh, you know meet our objectives by by just leveraging our expertise. but what is as important as that and that's important is also to not know what's going on is to have a tolerance for not knowing. Now at first glance that sounds like oh what do you mean not knowing? well, What happens when you can tolerate that kind of ambiguity, your curiosity uh, grows. You actually become curious about your experience, and you explore it in a very open way, not from the expert's point of view. An expert uses their expertise as a way of saying yes, no, right, wrong, go forward, go back, this matches up. But when you explore something from the point of view of not knowing, It's a much broader curiosity, and the quality of the learning is far more along the lines of innovating uh, and and sort of uh, uh, dancing with the circumstances versus trying to make them uh, behave. This quality of open curiosity, openly not knowing, but sort of exploring graciously, of course, and openly, intelligently. is, is, is very powerful, particularly in innovative uh, situations where you want to innovate, you want to see different angles. This is a natural quality of the mind. This is a natural quality of the mind. You know, it's not like you have to go to college to learn this. All you have to just get out of all we have to do is just get out of our way. <laughs> this natural openness and, and willingness to explore comes out. Um, as I said earlier, another very practical element of the practice is dropping fixed mindsets. You know, if you're a CFO, too often, everything looks like a number, right? If you're a salesperson, too often, everything looks like a deal. If you're a computer engineer, too often, everything looks like a project. Uh, When you do this practice, those uh, views are beautiful, but they're lenses. You can put them on and take them off. You're not frozen into a fixed mindset. Uh, And you're able to um, adapt and take many views. Some research has shown that um, great innovators not only have great ideas, but they're able to socialize their ideas very skillfully to diverse uh, constituencies. And in order to socialize your innovative idea, you have to get inside their skin. So there's a certain agility and openness to other people's perspectives, and knowing how to appeal to them, and knowing how to listen to them, and knowing how to frame things so that diverse people can, can uh, diverse types of people or diverse stakeholders can appreciate. Uh, again, these are all very natural qualities of the mind uh,
1: that begin to become unleashed the more you do the practice. And other, do you have any sort of, you know, business leaders or organizations that you, you know, really admire? For their mindfulness and uh, you know, is it translating into results for them? Well you know again, there's uh, you know I do a lot of work in in,
2: uh, in pharmaceuticals and in um, hold on one second I'm sorry I do a lot of work in scientific cultures and uh, you know I am just thinking of one uh, one uh, oncologist who uh, uh, manages a global team. And she, uh, you know, really went from trying to, uh, it's very complex managing these global teams, uh, because there are some, someone's in Shanghai, someone's in London, two people are outside of Philadelphia, one's in Toronto. How do you actually help people coalesce? And, um, I watched this person go from somebody who was frantically trying to make every everything perform itself to actually creating an atmosphere in which people were were magnetized and uh, uh, felt drawn to contribute rather than uh, uh, forced to. Um, it was very very skillful. and um, so yeah, I, I, I kind of <laughs> I think I meet a, a lot of people every day. Uh, not a lot, but many people every day who are applying this discipline and uh, beginning to see some very powerful results in 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 uh, creating healthy atmospheres. Healthy atmospheres, yeah, I
1: see it all the time. I'm sort of thinking through sort of one or two people in my mind, and what I I sort of notice about them is uh, almost there's a, there's a slightly quiet, sage-like quality about them, which is extremely magnetic. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and, and engaging, um, and I think uh, you know. I think those people do practice this, and you, and you can you know you, you see it and you feel it.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You see it and you feel it.
2: Yeah, well, I think you're talking to one of the core principles. One of the core principles of mindful leadership is: can you be comfortable in your own skin? Mm. Can you be at ease with who you are? That's a fundamental issue here. And the practice is all about that. If you sit still, and I'm not encouraging this to your audience, though maybe down the road they could, but if you you sit still for seven, eight hours a day for, let's say, ten days, you have to make friends with yourself. (laughs) 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 You You have to be kind to yourself. You have to go, okay, it's me. I'm just sitting here. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs>
1: <laughs> mm, yeah. I can see um I might have some challenges uh with my wife if I just sat in a room for seven um for eight days yeah. uh, myself. Um but uh it'd be been a really, really interesting exercise. Um, so how, are there some practical exercises that we can we can do to help us to get into a mindful state? Because I with with we've talked about our business people today being, you know, very busy as um, many people dealing with really complex situations like the one you just described with the oncologist. Mm-hmm. Uh, how can we, you know, get ourselves into a mindful state and, and fit that into our, our busy work schedules? Yeah. Well, you know,
2: I don't, Chris, you know, I don't flog my books. It's not something I'm interested in doing. Uh, but the Awake at Work is a way if, if you're if you're doing your meditation regularly and you just do 15 minutes a day. That's all. It, it, what happens is is your view when you go to work begins to shift, just very naturally. It just begins to shift. The, oh, the awake at work has several principles that you can play with. So I'll give you one. Right. So one of the principles. Now again, you're doing the meditation and you're beginning to notice that you're here at work rather than in your head all the time. And one of the principles is welcome the tyrant. Okay. Now welcome. The tyrant is about the fact that we all at work. There's fun. Other people annoy us and we're probably, I know for me, I'm annoying to other people. So we annoy one another at work. And I assume that you've noticed that Chris, and I'm sure that the audience has noticed that we annoy one another. Yeah. Well, when you're a practitioner that you don't amplify that annoyance you actually explore it now it's uncomfortable you know it isn't necessarily pleasant but you begin to explore the annoyance rather than pull back and and amplify it mm. and blame you actually explore it. And at first it could just be, you know, listening carefully or, or watching, you know, why does this person annoy me so much? And just being authentically curious about your experience when you're being annoyed. Very simple. Mm. Um, so, I, I'm, you know, it's not so much that I want to give everybody a, here's the way to be mindful at work. Five steps, you know. It's, it's far more human than that. Far more
1: human than that. Well, I would, I have to confess, I've not read Awake at Work, but I've read Fearless at Work, and I can honestly say I absolutely loved it. I thought it was, uh, I thought it was different, um, and it, I came away with a number of different sort of thoughts and ideas, and being extremely widely read, really, um, that I'd not read elsewhere. Uh, so, uh, I loved that book, and I actually studied that book with um, with a, a mentoring group that I, that I host, and they loved it as well. Uh, well, thank you. Thank so, you very much. So I would recommend I would recommend uh, Michael's books um, wholeheartedly, um, and uh, I know you're not trying to flog them, as you say, but um, I hope you don't mind me sharing that. I generally <laughs> <laughs> well, it makes my publisher happy. That's for sure. <laughs> I, I generally um, enjoyed reading that, and uh, will add a weight at work to my repertoire. Um, so uh, we we can do what you're saying is we can with 15 minutes a day, uh, and uh, are we. You know, are we we there's a process in your book around uh, meditation. Um, I assume that's about kind of bringing your thoughts back to your back to your breath. Um, yeah, essentially.
2: Back, yeah, I mean good. the med- I'm sorry, I interrupted you Good. Yeah, that that's enough, is it? Well, it's not. It's not so much. It's enough, right? It, it, it's it, it's kind of it's learning to swim. Let's just use that as a metaphor. It's, it, we're, we're we're gonna we're gonna learn to swim. So you know. It's not like we're going to have to swim 27 miles or swim across the ocean. Let's just make sure that we swim every day so that we get the rhythm. We understand what's required. We, we no longer resist getting into the water, you know, that kind of thing. And just become familiar. See, med- see, one of the errors that we make about meditation is we think that by doing meditation, we're going to accomplish something. And this is very uh, annoying to Western people, uh, (laughs) but it's the facts. This practice is not about accomplishing anything at all. This is about becoming familiar with our experience. It's becoming, it's recognizing qualities of who we are that we've overlooked, that we've taken for granted. And therefore, it's just a matter of becoming familiar. So, in the beginning, particularly, if one wants to go on this journey, just become familiar with sitting still for
1: 15 minutes. Wonderful. Well, We're going to go to commercial break now, but after the break, we're going to talk about, uh, about things like vulnerability and, uh, and how to take meditation even further. So we're back with you again in just a couple of minutes.
0: Email info at bemoreachievemore.com to arrange a free, no-obligation consultation to see how Chris and his team can help you. What if every day was a good day for business? Because every decision you made was the best choice. What if you could receive regular input from credible sources and could acquire all the precise information you need exactly when you need it so you can make the right decision every single time? Because There's More challenges you to make better decisions. Join Laura Ellis every Monday at 9 a.m. Eastern, 6 a.m. Pacific, and 2 p.m. GMT on the Voice America Business Channel and learn how to think differently for better decisions, better business.
1: Now, back to Chris Cooper. Hi, this is Chris Cooper. I'm with Michael Carroll. Um, we were, we're talking about, uh, about mindfulness. And I remember when, Michael, when you and I were chatting, you said to sort of plan this show, you said to me that insults are not snowballs, they're actually windows. And I thought that was quite an interesting conversation to discover. And I, I think this is probably linked to some of the benefits and the value people gain from meditation. Do you want to explain what you meant?
2: Sure. Yeah, I think this is an important element of the practice is, um, and this is true generally in life, but in work, I think it comes into very stark clarity. And I say this to executives all the time that I coach, which is there's always two agendas going on. Always, always, always. One is very technical. You know, if you're a project manager or an engineer or a physician or whatever, Salesperson, you have a you have a functional agenda, which is to close the deal, you know, finish the project, whatever. But the second agenda that parallels it is always emotional. There's always an emotional agenda because we're human, and when those two uh, agendas come together, well, uh, we have a healthy culture, so that the emotions and the job work together well, there's passion, trust, openness, all of the healthy emotions that we would want in our workplace to bring about well-being and, and, and sense of joy, frankly. Uh, but as we all know, there's, there's always uh, things going on at work, annoying, we annoy one another, there's difficulties, and often we are insulted by our experience sometimes deliberately. I mean, what is it, one out of five people report that they were demeaned within the past 24 hours on the job? Uh, and I think this is both true in, in in the British culture as well as the United States. I think the data came from both those. That often we're, we're, we're insulted in many ways. Now, from the point of view of working with the emotional agenda, when a pract- when, as someone who does mindfulness, over time you no longer are kind of ambushed by the emotionality of of life. And even uh, and that's why I say insults are not snowballs, they're windows. When you have this sense of confidence that comes out of the practice and it begins to flourish, somebody insulting you doesn't have the same level of gravitas as it used to. In fact, at a certain point, it becomes kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. You know, it's kind of like, oh, okay, well, what's that about? Uh, and and, and if, you're, if you have a good heart, you can actually see through that and see the other person's situation. And often it's not pleasant, by the way. Uh, but in, in, in any case, this practice gives us an enormous emotional agility and social intelligence that we don't have to buy the emotional agenda. We can be really aware of it very open to it and we can promote healthy uh, emotional atmosphere at work where there's respect trust openness even in conflict we can treat one another with some level of respect because it's very natural it's, it's not that it's not that hard to do really it's it's not always pleasant uh, but it's our nature to
1: be respectful to one another really mm. i think uh and that's really, really important because if you do, um, if you do, I guess, sort of what's the word, I'll say, not cut yourself down, but you, if you do kind of retrench yourself from somebody who's maybe, uh, giving you what you think is an insult and cut yourself off from them, you can be in a place where there's no communication, can't you? Or there's no the connection's lost. If you can keep that level of respect still for them, yeah, uh, then. You know, we can continue to, uh, you know, potentially be productive together.
2: Yeah, I think you. I think you're right on it, there, Chris. Is that when we feel insulted, even if it, the person wasn't, even well, not I've seen you've seen it, I've seen it, we've all seen it. Person didn't intend to hurt our feelings. They didn't intend to make us feel diminished. Uh, but what we do when we pull back and pull in emotionally, we begin to amplify. the the insult into something that it isn't. Yes. Here, with the practice, you open toward the insult. You open toward the conflict. You open toward the difficulty. And you get a clearer picture of what it is. And you become curious about it. And there's a sense of willingness.
1: Uh, That comes from confidence. That comes from confidence. Hmm. How does... Vulnerability is quite an interesting subject, in in that you know, I do find that the most engaging people that I, I communicate with, and and you know, people like yourself, are, are prepared to be vulnerable with others. They're prepared to come on my radio show and share their deepest thoughts and uh, and, uh, and and concerns and experiences, and uh, you know where they've uh, where they've failed and how they've learned from it, and. How does being vulnerable, do you think, really help us? And does this practice help with that vulnerability?
2: Well, I think, uh, you know, a couple of things. One is, in mindful leadership and in the practice of mindfulness awareness meditation, vulnerability is the source of all power and all confidence and all that is actually inspiring. Now in the West, when we hear vulnerability, we usually think of weakness, something that should be protected, something that should be otherwise. Uh, but from the point of view of practice of uh, mindfulness awareness, vulnerability is reality. That to be human is fundamentally to be vulnerable. There's really no way out of it. Now, th- the problem occurs when you try to try to cover up the vulnerability. And all kinds of strategies and all kinds of maneuvers begin to sort of create a puppet show of relationships and versions and titles and credentials. And it gets, Mm -hmm. it's almost like you're not even talking to one another, you're talking to versions of one another. Mm -hmm. You know, Uh, vulnerability is about acknowledging, recognizing that there is a fundamental human connection that we all have. And out of that fundamental acknowledgement, we can actually be confident. We can actually be open to one another. Uh, Are we gonna make mistakes? Of course, works a mess. Are we going to hurt one another on occasion? Absolutely, we misunderstand one another. Uh, But guess what, that's okay. Stay open, let's see where this goes. So this sense of vulnerability is not in the West, we see it as kind of like, oh, I'm gonna get hurt. From the point of view of the practice, it's the source of confidence. Vulnerability is the fact that we're highly attuned, highly in touch with our experience. Uh, you know, uh, you can experience vulnerability and its power when, you, if you're paranoid. Paranoia is vulnerability infected by fear. Paranoia is so sensitive. It's very alert. It's trying to pick up on everything. It's trying to read the situation well. But because it's driven by fear... It's constantly misinterpreting everything. Mm. When you strip the fear out of paranoia, there's, this, there's a beautiful quality of attentiveness, sensitivity. Uh, you're in touch with things. You're willing to open, be curious. Uh, so part of the practice is to get strip the fear out of the situation so that these natural
1: qualities of who we are can come alive. Yeah. And uh, is there... You know, I mentioned to you prior well, to this interview that I've got a speech coming up with over five hundred people there, uh, and and I imagine some people listening here have also got things that they're going to do which they fear. Can this process really help us with steadying ourselves and uh, and just moving back to this vulnerability with confidence?
2: No doubt, I have no doubt about it. it and it, it's it's it, the, the notion of fearlessness is not, we're not looking to have a fear-free life. We're looking to live our life fearlessly. So it, it's not a matter of trying to get comfortable with, with being vulnerable. It's, it's recognizing that it's who we are. It's okay. It's okay. It's okay to fall in love. It's okay to stand in front of 500 people and not know necessarily what you're about to say. Mm. Uh, it, it's, it's who we are. And, again, that's fearlessness. You're willing to step into those situations rather than step out. And that quality of stepping in is what what the practice actually unleashes in us.
1: Yes. Wonderful. And now I know you've spent spent many hours in meditation. And we've probably just got a a couple of minutes left before I need to wrap up. Um, And we're suggesting that people could do 15 minutes, something like that. But how do you how do you really get the most out of mindfulness? Do you think you know? Is there a bigger commitment needed? Yeah, I, I would. Yeah, I, ultimately, I think it's organic.
2: This is important, and I and I and I do recommend to you and your audience that it's an organic and human experience. So start easy, just fifteen minutes a day. Just get used to it. You know. And try to be consistent. It's you know, it's difficult getting to the meditation cushion, so to speak, but try. And over, do that for a few months, and see what is changing, and 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 experiment with it and feel it. You know, maybe read a book, read one of mine, or read Pema Chodron's books. There's lots of really good teachers out there, and read a little bit, explore it. After a few months, if you're doing the practice consistently and you are exploring some of the underlying principles, and it, it resonates with you, it, you will naturally unfold. You will naturally unfold. Um, from my point of view, I'm a bit of a purist here my teacher was, so um, at some point I would strongly encourage, as I do to many people, that, you, that we practice for extended periods. We're talking six to eight hours a day for maybe five days. Now, I know for many of your who they're like, what? <laughs> but it comes quite naturally, and there is something very powerful about it. But for, for beginners, eh, just 15 minutes a day, read a few books, see how, see how it resonates with you, and, and let the organic quality of it unfold.
1: Wonderful. Well, I'm going to, have to ask you, if you have a final message that you'd like to leave us with? Because we've got about 10 seconds, for it. <laughs> 15 seconds. The uh, final message? Uh, you know, I, I
2: think that um, being gracious... Being gracious to one another. That even in conflict, we can always be gracious to one another. And it's
1: very skillful. So that would be just be gracious to one another. Wonderful. And this uh, this technique of mindfulness can help us with that graciousness. Um, well, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the show again, Michael. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. And I hope you have as well. And if well, to thank talk- you want to thank you for having me back. Very welcome. If you've got for more information on mindful leadership, go to www.awakeatwork.net. That's awakeatwork.net. If you've got any questions or feedback on the show, please send them to me at chris at chriscooper.co.uk or info at bemorecheapmore.com. And uh, on next week's show, we have uh, John Boggs, and John is a former Marine Corps um, uh, military uh, senior officer, and. He's working, doing some great work with many, many organizations. And we're going to talk about strategic leadership uh, and also his lessons uh, on engagement uh, from a, a truly fascinating background. So do join me on that show next week. And once again, a big thank you to Michael Carroll. Thank you very much. You're welcome.
0: Thank you for listening to Be More, Achieve More. Please join your host, Chris Cooper, again next Friday at 8 a.m. U.S. Pacific Time, typically 4 p.m. London on the Voice America Business Channel. Enjoy your week.